Welcome everyone to episode three of The Citizen's Guide. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Um, we've got a really busy show today. We're going to talk about Vice President Joe Biden's selection in the vice presidential process. We're gonna talk about the post office. We're gonna talk about the Department of Education and some bad stuff that's going on up there. Uh, and then we've got some international stuff. We're gonna talk about some recent elections in Belarus and then uh, the Russian vaccine announcement, uh, some more stuff in Hong Kong, and then we're gonna introduce two new segments. So I'm really excited for this show. It's gonna be super busy. But Connor, do you wanna just go ahead and start us off with finally some good news uh, from the presidential campaign? So it sounds like that Vice President Biden has selected his running mate and it's Kamala Harris junior senator of california and previous attorney general for the state of california i for one am thrilled by his pick as i as we said in our first episode no matter who he chose any of them would be well qualified and though we didn't spend a lot of time talking about kamala in the first episode under the i think under the understanding that she was probably one of the front runners at least most talked about so I, for one, am very excited for what she brings to the ticket. Yeah, I think, I think we kind of took her for granted. You know, we just kind of assumed that she was near the top of the list and then just didn't, because uh, she had already been introduced to the country when she ran for president this year. She did her campaign before any votes were cast, but she still um, ran that, has that experience. Yeah, like you said, she has the experience as senator. She was elected in 2016 for that. Also as attorney general of California, and prior to that, she was the district attorney of San Francisco. So she you know, has that background, a lot of experience working in big cities, a, a big state. Um, I don't think there's anyone questioning her qualifications for the role, except for maybe the president, which we can talk about in a second. But I think one thing that just has to be said at the beginning is that she is the daughter of Indian and Jamaican immigrants and she is the first black woman and the first person of Indian descent to be selected for uh, a major party's national ticket. And I think everyone just needs to take a moment and think about how phenomenal that is, that someone with that history can be so close to being uh, vice president of the United States. So I'm very excited about just the historic nature of it. And that historic nature was a bit, well, was undermined when the president and his, his advisors started questioning whether she was eligible to run, which is just a blatant lie and another attempt to just, I don't know. I don't know what, what the strategy is there because it's, again, a blatant just false falsehood as it was with, and he started the Obama birtherism, just racist is what it is yeah yeah it's it's just racism um yeah. kamala harris was born in oakland california uh so she's a natural born citizen according to the constitution and there's just really no there's nothing else to discuss about that yeah like, it's a non-starter open and closed but disgusting that the president uh just dove right into that conspiracy theory he basically said in a little press conference that he had seen on like social media that maybe she wasn't eligible and it's just so irresponsible for him 
uh, as both candidate and as president to spread lies like that about uh, a politician on the national stage. Uh, but I think that's all the, all the yeah. air, air time we're going to give that uh, yeah. lie. Um, more stuff about Kamala. Um, during the primaries, she had a very conflicted relationship with Joe Biden, I think. There were some moments and some debates where they didn't really see eye to eye on some... Uh, it was like busting Stuff from when, from when Joe Biden was the senator from Delaware. But it seems from the reporting that they were kind of able to mend that relationship and bond over the fact that when Kamala was the attorney general for California, uh, Vice President Biden's son, Bo, was the attorney general for the state of Delaware. So there's a lot of interactions between those roles. And I think Bo, when he was... Uh, still alive, was very, uh, very close with Senator Harris. And I think Vice President Biden really took that to heart. And uh, I think it's going to be an excellent working relationship between the two. They, and the fact that they disagreed, I think, makes the relationship even more, even more, um, even stronger. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, what did, I know we both watched kind of the rollout where they both gave speeches to the press in Delaware. What did you think about, I guess, both the speeches and the format? I thought the speeches were excellent. I think that the past four years have jaded us to what a presidential address should sound like. It should be a, a coherent speech, not ramblings of just falsehoods and whatever the president decides he wants to talk about. So it was refreshing just to hear two leaders speak with a dedicated message based on facts, based on, based on their common, just common like stories and narratives and hope, mostly hope for the country. So that was nice. I think that campaigning going forward is going to just be awkward. I think the conditions of our time with social distancing, with mask wearing and prohibiting of large gatherings will make speeches like these not awkward to hear, but I think they gain more out of doing closer one-on-one -on -one interactions with smaller groups of people. I wouldn't do a, an empty audience again. Yeah. An empty, empty address again. Yeah. But besides that, I thought the content of the speech was great. I thought the introduction, their stories were really, really important to hear. Mm -hmm. And just, I have a quote here from Senator Harris's speech. And she said, talking about President Trump, quote, he inherited the longest economic expansion in history from Barack Obama and Joe Biden. And then like everything else he inherited, he ran it straight into the ground. Um, so that's kind of a taste of what their message is going to be. And I think it's a hard hitting message. And I think, it, I think it's going to resonate with people along with her own like immigrant story uh, and then Joe Biden's years of public service. So I, but, but yes, like you, it was awkward to watch. I think she was uniquely capable of making yes. it seem normal. Yes. The Vice President Biden, not so much, but he has a few years on her and is, you know, just not as probably used to like doing things like that. Like it's been a while 
even like before he ran for president that he had to like give like a lot of speeches like that and stuff it just wasn't kind of his daily thing but but senator harris is very used to being in front of the camera and and talking and just so comfortable with it um i loved it and they did like a like a coronavirus like press conference uh i guess yesterday uh, i didn't watch all of that but it seemed that seemed to be a good format like kind of both yeah. of them sitting down like kind of having a discussion with the country i, yeah. I wouldn't you know if they're listening encourage them to continue that format <laughs> of delivering information but also kind of showing the camaraderie that exists between those two exactly and i think it's it's been interesting to see what the response has been to campaign against both harris and biden coming from trump he hasn't found a narrative i think that's stuck with Kamala harris much like um joe biden he paints both of them as um antifa activists and also like two centrist which they have to pick a message and no matter what though what message they pick it doesn't actually apply to their actual stances right because if you paint kamala as centrist you look at her senate voting record which is one of the most progressive in the body or too too progressive and then you look at her her record again or her stances like and if if centrist is the position she's taking then i think that's a great great thing for progressives that they've been able to make these their ideas so mainstream so yeah it's a it's a far shot from 2016 when president trump was able to land what to the lot of the country were very like potent attacks you know crooked hillary yeah. whatever like that resonated for whatever reason with large swaths of the American public. So far, it doesn't seem to be working. Calling her like a phony Kamala, I don't, I don't know. And then also he tweeted out something directing it to like, quote, suburban women or like the suburban housewife and basically suggested that Senator Harris, along with Senator Cory Booker of New Jersey, would bring low-income housing into the suburbs. And to me, it seems like he's traded the dog whistle for the bullhorn in saying these two black senators are going to make it to where your neighbors aren't white anymore. Yeah. And yeah. But I think also it's just also he takes this approach of him trying to be the voice of suburban women when Kamala Harris is a mom. Like, I think moms would have a lot more to relate to with Senator Harris than they do President Trump. I totally agree. Yeah. I, I, I'm interested to see where the future of his campaign against her goes, because when you just look at the optics of Donald Trump and Mike Pence versus Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, you have a very big choice to make about what you think the country looks like and what you want its leadership to look like. And I, like the rest of Biden supporters, am very much looking forward to uh, Senator Harris and Vice President Pence on the debate stage. Um, 
it'll it'll be very different than 2016 when he was debating Tim Kaine, um, who is yeah. an excellent senator. I love him, but I think Senator Harris is in a whole nother league of debate skills, public speaking, public presentations. So I, I am just waiting. And I think that'll take place like the first week of October, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Um, should we move on to the challenges of people actually getting to vote for these candidates? Yeah, which... I think we should. Um, so let's talk about the post office, which a month ago I would have laughed and said, oh, like why on earth would that be a topic? Like that's so silly. The post office is the post office. But um, that's not the case. The post office is currently under attack by Donald Trump and his cronies. Um, so Donald Trump recently appointed a new postmaster general. Uh, his name is uh, Louis DeJoy, and he is famous for being a Trump donor and like a mega GOP fundraiser. So he's just a super rich guy who has experience in the private sector working with logistics, which Face value, that sounds great. Um, when you consider that he also has major investments in UPS, which is a USPS competitor, that becomes a little bit more problematic. And you might think, wait a second, maybe he shouldn't have his hands on the, on the steering wheel of a constitutionally mandated federal office. Mm. Um, so basically what he's decided to do is what Republicans have wanted for a long time. He's throwing the mechanisms of the post office into chaos so as to destroy Americans' trust in it and then also to shift business to its private sector competitors. Um, and so do you want to talk about how that might affect people's ballots in the mail? Yes. And I think we should also go on the record and say that there's been some obfuscation coming from the right saying that there is a difference between absentee ballots and universal mail-in ballots, which is just not the case. Like it's the same system, the same sort of process, but they're trying to deflect that Republican voters use mail-in, I'm getting so confused because they're the same. They use yeah. mail-in ballots, most older, Republicans, President Trump is going to use a mail-in ballot to vote in yeah. his Florida he the, race. He and the first lady have already requested their ballots from Florida, which no. they don't seem to live in Florida. I, I always assumed the president lived in the White House. That's a whole nother thing, but go ahead. So just, I don't, there is no distinction, no discernible distinction between these two programs. They're just trying to cover for people who vote by mail and people who want to vote by mail, it is all just a confusing mess on purpose for people who actually need to vote by mail. No matter whether it's, I don't know, like you mandated or not. Um, I, I forgot the question where. <laughs> <laughs> just, well, I, I just want to point out the specific things and I have them here in front of me, the specific things that the new Postmaster General has done to slow oh. down the delivery of mail. Um, yeah, that's okay. Like, you, you gave us a good explanation of, of yeah. what the GOP is lying to us about. Um, but basically, the new Postmaster General has, uh, in order to cut costs, he has prohibited overtime pay. 
He has shut down sorting machines like earlier in the day. Um, I don't know how that saves money. That doesn't, it's needed as a machine. I don't know. And then he has required letter carriers to leave mail behind when necessary to avoid extra trips or late de delivery on their routes. And so all of this together is very scary because a record number of Americans are expected to vote by mail in November. And if the post office isn't running at 100% capacity, and also if people don't trust it to be running at 100% capacity, the election will be a bigger mess than it probably will be already. And just to put this in perspective, like the post office is capable of doing this and was capable of doing this before these changes, these, these obstructions got put in place because according to the post office itself, it processes 500 million pieces of mail every day and then 3 billion pieces in the week before Christmas alone. And that's, that compares in the comparison to the 150, registered, 150 million registered voters that would mail in the ballots. That's all Americans registered to vote. So just a minuscule amount of like logistics. So it's not like the post office was incapable of doing this beforehand, but it's now incapable of doing this because of these measures being put in place. Yeah, that's a great point. And even uh, these, are, these new like regulations, rules, whatever, weren't put into place until July 13th. So about a month ago and already uh, the new policies have resulted in like two day delays, uh, like even for express mail, which most ballots in states are express mail and letter carriers are having to manually sort more mail. So it takes longer to deliver. And then this is a really scary one thinking about ballots. It says bins of mail ready for delivery are sitting in post offices because of scheduling and route changes. And without the ability to work overtime, workers say the logjam is worsening without an end in sight. And that's so scary as a voter to think about November and just a bucket of ballots sitting maybe in a Detroit post office, yeah. uh, not being and it, in time. It all plays into what his what President Trump's strategy is, is that to, is the fear that he, the fear being placed that people won't know who the president is on election day, election night. Even if there's ballots that are still needed to be count, counted, and if Joe Biden is projected to be the winner on election night and there's ballots still left to be count, Trump will quite fraud, rightfully so. I mean, not whether there's ballots, those ballots will go to Biden or not. It just creates chaos and distrust in the system, like you said. Yeah, and I would just on the point of not knowing who the president is election night, I would guess that back, back at the beginning of the country, back in, you know, 18th century, there were many presidential elections where you didn't know who it was the night of. You didn't have CNN, you know, on your, on your television. You, you had to wait probably for your post office worker to tell you who the president was, to deliver you a newspaper that said it. So it just, I think we just have to take a deep breath and not be in a hurry about it. But people have got to be aware that the post office really needs support. Um, yeah, and that's, and none of this is to say that you shouldn't trust the post office. I think my recommendation would be request your ballot as early as possible and return it as early as possible. Um, voters or in Tennessee- Vote early if you can. Or vote early in person. Able to. Yeah. 
but voters in Tennessee can already uh, go ahead and request their ballot. Um, I don't know about other states, but if you're listening from Tennessee and you're eligible, um, you can go to the Secretary of State's website and request it. Uh, and then just more on the post office, our listeners, you're going to know everything there is to know about the post office. Um, the Postal Workers Union, which is one of seven unions that the post office uh, bargains with, uh, has endorsed Joe Biden and has warned that the survival of the USPS is at stake in this election. Um, and they especially point out that rural areas are most at risk because uh, like I, speaking just from personal experience, the post office is often, they, even when I order something for, that gets delivered by like FedEx or UPS or whatever, the post office is the last leg of that journey. They deliver to the post office and then the post office will deliver it. So it just really has an impact on how rural Americans are able to access things. And nothing I order, you know, I, I need. But if you're thinking about a senior who gets their medicine in the mail, you know, a two-day delay could be deadly. And that's yeah. really scary. And I, I just worry, worry about that. And like every seemingly political gain, the president must weigh in throwing, throwing um, dis distrust at the post office or making these, putting these people in charge who destroy the institution. You have to wonder, like, what is... What does he see in it? Like, what is his his motive, if not to alienate the rural voters that he depends upon? I don't know what his election calculus is there by attacking the post office. Most likely nothing. And he is just fearful that if people actually get to vote, they won't vote for him. Yeah. And this is not the first time he has like verbally and institutionally attacked the post office. He has often complained about the post office giving like low rates to Amazon for its deliveries because he doesn't like Jeff Bezos and the Washington Post and all that, which like is ridiculous. Just at face value, like just do your job and fund the post office properly. Um, also, another like, fun fact about the post office, it's totally self-funding. Like your tax dollars don't pay for it. But when you go like buy stamps or like buy a box, like that's what pays for it. And yeah, the, the post office hasn't had to ask for government money in over 40 years, but it did receive $75 million, if I'm correct, in the CARES Act that was passed earlier in March due to the coronavirus. But it more than made up for that cost and revenue with the increase in packages that were shipped. Yeah. So it's not like it was struggling. There are some problems with like how it's structured, but that's this isn't the time to fix those issues when it's falling apart. Right, right. And uh, yeah, I think that's, I think that's all I have to say about the post office right now. I just go, go buy some stamps, support your post office. If you, you know, call your congressperson and tell them that the post office is important to you because it is, there's no one who doesn't benefit from having very cheap post. Um, because if yeah. you compare the prices at the post office to its competitors, it looks like a bargain. Uh, so, yeah. So that's it. Yep. <laughs> Connor, um, the next thing I want to talk about is Betsy DeVos, the Department of Education. Um, I think this episode is just going to be me ranting about Trump-appointed individuals ruining <laughs> our federal bureaucracy. 
Um, it looks like for Betsy DeVos, it looks just like there isn't any news because there should be news coming from the Department of Education. Um, she, as head of the department, she probably should have done, I don't know, anything to help schools at least have a plan, a strategy, coordinating among federal like health officials and then states. Again, the lack of news, the lack of effort is the news itself. Um, what do you, what else? <laughs> yeah, so just a little background on Betsy DeVos. She's the Secretary of Education um, appointed by Donald Trump. And she's one of the few that has lasted from the beginning until now. Um, she is a billionaire heiress. She's a GOP donor. And she's a charter school advocate with no experience with public education prior to being appointed to run the Department of Education. May, may I also say, just to hop on this train, she's one of the only cabinet officials in history to have U.S. marshal protection. Yeah, and that's, no, no reason. Yeah, and that, that protection is currently at her waterfront mansion in Michigan, where yeah. she's working remotely while uh, encouraging American schools to open for in-person learning. Um, but yeah, like you said, this story is basically just a story of inaction rather than action. And she and the president are very big on the idea of schools reopening. I think he sees it as a way to convince people that things are back to normal and to reelect him. But as the secretary of education, she is not the superintendent of American public education. It's not the most powerful brand, like office of our government. A lot of decisions are left up to local school boards. Um, which is a different discussion. And, but, but the problem is, yeah, her absence. She's working from home, from her mansion. And uh, Connecticut Governor Ned Lamont said last week that he did not know, quote, what, if anything, the feds are going to do to help. And this, to me, seems like a big opportunity for the federal government to give assistance rather than be absent. I just... I have educators in my family, you have educators in your family, and it's really frustrating to watch all of this unfold because local school boards aren't always equipped with the expertise to make decisions about a global pandemic, and the federal government needs to have a role in this. Uh, what, what do you think about it? Like, like, like any appointee, just the absence, the direction of duty, any, any number of ways you want to call it, but as Secretary of Education, you think she has at least a moral obligation to help the school she's supposed to represent on some level. Like the bare minimum would be just forming a task force of some sort to help with testing, with with getting protective equipment to teachers. Any any one of those things would be something compared to just yeah. whatever whatever she's doing at the mansion. Yeah. Or even, even, you know, just forming like a, like a system of how to decide if a school is safe to reopen. And if yeah. it's not safe to reopen, the federal government needs to be involved in securing money to buy those students what they need in order to keep learning. You can't just say we're not going to open it. There has to be a safety net in place for students where it's not safe enough to go back. And newsflash, it's not safe enough to go back hardly anywhere. 
I think yeah. like the state of New York has a plan and that's likely to work because they've been in it since day one. Yeah. But like schools across the South are reopening and having to immediately close again, even in Tennessee, like students are testing positive, teachers are. It just, yeah. there's, 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 there's no, no plan. There's no plan in place when community spread is so high. Like nothing can stop those outside forces, outside factors from impacting what goes on inside a school. So, again, the lack of action is the story itself. Yeah. And the willingness to put educators and students at risk is, at is risk. really scary. And I hope everyone just remembers that when they vote in November, um, <laughs> who, who pushed them to return to work in unsafe conditions. But at least we're going to have fall sports from the yes. Big 12 conference. Yes, and high school sports, thanks to Governor Bill Lee's Yes. executive or governor i don't know but the equivalent to executive order mm -hmm. yes <sighs> yeah oh. <laughs> so we'll give more updates on this little story as it develops doesn't look like it's going to develop well um it's really sad to watch and i my heart goes out to student public school students uh, parents, teachers, um, yeah, it's a, a, just a bad situation. The whole community that's put at risk by this. Ex yes, exactly. Because when you bring back big colleges, you're putting, uh, mm -hmm. the, the locals of those towns at risk as well. Yeah. Um, and just to to force teachers to make the decision between teaching their, their students and staying healthy just shouldn't have, that's not a false question. choice. Yeah, that's not a question they should ever have to answer. Mm -mm. Um, but I guess maybe to reassure everyone, the craziness isn't confined to the United States of America. Rest assured, big news is happening elsewhere without our, without our um, involvement. So what has been happening in the nation of Belarus, Pierce? Yeah, so, yeah, like you said, hopefully we're not involved in this. Um, so we're going to talk about the election, but just like a few statistics about Belarus. Belarus is a country of about 9.5 million people in Central Europe, and it borders Russia, Poland, Lithuania, and Latvia. Um, so it's, you know, situated in Eastern Europe, uh, all that. Um, it's a former <laughs> Soviet state, and Alexander Lukashenko has been the president since 1994. He's the first and only president of that country. And Belarus is known to a lot of Western observers as Europe's last dictatorship. Uh, so already not shaping up to be a great story. Um, and Lukashenko, the president, has been very pro-Russia and pro-Putin during his very long tenure. Um, but on August 9th, there was an election and he had his first, his first serious challenger in a long time. And her name is Svetlana. Tikhanovskaya. Uh, that's going to be the only time I say her name because I think I got it right. Uh, but yeah, uh, she's a 26-year-old English teacher. So she's about five years older than us, Connor, and she ran for president. Incredible. Um, and it seemed like she was doing well. Originally, her, I believe, husband was going to run for president, but then he was put in jail by Lukashenko. And so they had election on August 9th, and according to government-sponsored exit polls, 
uh, President Lukashenko had won with 80% of the vote, but observers from Svetlana's campaign say that that's no good. That Which is also, take out maybe the sort of bias and maybe her observers, but she was drawing crowds unseen in Belarus in a long time. Thousands of people were taking the streets. So just to claim that 80% of the people backed is preposterous on its own. Yeah, it's, it's not. <laughs> it can't be true. Um, but long story short, massive protests in Belarus now. Uh, Minsk, Minsk is the capital, sorry. Um, so massive protests, uh, hopefully stay, you know, wearing a mask. I'm sure Belarus is not coping with COVID very well. Um, and they've turned violent due to state police uh, assaulting their own citizens. That sounds familiar. Um, mm. And Svetlana, the challenger, has actually fled the country. She uh, basically disappeared for a few days after meeting with uh, like the National Election Commission of Belarus. And then she resurfaced later, I believe, in Lithuania. Uh, I could be wrong about where, where she showed back up. But anyway, she then did like a press conference where she said, quote, many will understand me, many will judge me, some will hate me. Uh, she said, what is happening now is not worth even one life and went on to say, God forbid you ever have to face the choice that I faced. So I think the understanding is that Lukashenko's government threatened her and they have, since she fled the country, uh, imprisoned members of her campaign and family. Um, so again, not, not a good, happy news story. Um, just another sad example of kind of an election gone wrong where liberal values have not been upheld. Um, but hopefully, I, I'm hopeful that the protests and her candidacy are symbolic of a larger change happening in Belarus. What, what do you think about it? I think it is more hopeful than first appearances would would give it. I think the fact that the tens of thousands of people came into the streets to protest against Lukashenko is a sign that no matter how long a dictator may be in office, there's at some point, like, the jig is up. Like, the people are not happy with the deal that's been made. And so that that's what gives me hope, is that the you see these protests happening at a such a large scale too. Yeah. Um, but on like an international stage, I think it's kind of disappointing to see like the EU sort of just wring its hands about what's happening. Not just that it's happened now, but they've allowed a dictator to be in power on their doorstep for the past 20 something years. Yeah, I, I do think the European Union is in a bit of a tough decision kind of a tough situation with it because Belarus is not a member state. Um, they are party to some like free trade treaties, I think, but being a non-member combined with the European Union's lifelong hesitancy to act as one unit on foreign policy mm -hmm. um, has kind of created a bad combination because I think there is space in Europe for the EU to act as one body on things like this. Um, Especially when it's a counter to Russian influence in the region. Right. Lukashenko just pleaded with the Kremlin to send in 
Russian forces to deal with the unrest caused by the election. So I, a great reason for, for more forceful statements from the EU. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, admittedly, Belarus historically uh, has had close ties to Russia. You know, there's a long history there that some states in Europe don't have with Russia. So hard to tell another country what to do, but I wish, I wish yes. the election, uh, I wish we could have more faith in the election and that the challenger had not felt the need to flee the country. It's just very reminiscent of when Vladimir Putin runs for re-election and his challengers end up either jailed or subdued in some other way. Or like a 90% voter, 90% re-election for Vladimir Putin. Right. Yes. So hopefully, I don't know, uh, our Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, released a statement supporting the protesters. Um, Again, just ironic that he'll support the protesters in Belarus, but not the protesters in Portland. Just just a thought. (laughs) thought. Um, But yeah, I, you know, I hope Svetlana is able to return to her home country in peace at some point, but it, it seems like she might be in for kind of a extended exile, unfortunately, because of her courage to run that race. Um, but while we're in Eastern Europe, I want you to give us an update on the COVID-19 vaccine that the Russian government seems to have produced. Sput- and, Sputnik. And are you gonna sign up to receive the vaccine? Sputnik 5, Sputnik V, has been released to the populace. Everyone, I think it's clear a clear sign that we should just go out, trust in this Russian vaccine, and sign up wherever it's available. I trust Sputnik 5, Sputnik V, whatever it's called. Um, actually, no, don't do that. <laughs> um, numerous sci- scientists, including Dr. Fauci, raise skepticism about the the efficiency, the efficacy of the virus and the safety of the, sorry, the vaccine. The vaccine itself was skipped over in like phase three trials. It was never mass produced or mass massively tested in Russia. And I think it has dangerous implications for future virus. I mean, future vaccine testing and production, especially in the United States, because I don't want to sound alarmist, but I think if this is turning into like a vaccine arms race, I don't see President Trump backing down, rather trying to push for a, vi- for a vaccine as quick as possible to counter Sputnik. Yeah. Yeah. I think we would all prefer a vaccine that takes a little longer, but is safe and effective yes. rather than a hastily produced vaccine that's either dangerous or doesn't work. Yes, um, do you think they will have doses of the Russian vaccine available at the Mar-a-Lago Labor Day party? I, I Maybe not for everyone, but I'm sure it comes in some sort of like goodie bag you get okay. on your way out. Yeah. So if you're like, if you're like a platinum member. Yeah. Yeah. Club. Okay. Just curious. Cause you know, I have big Labor Day plans to head down there. Um, and I, I just find it funny that Russia is the first one to like come up with a vaccine because their initial like crisis with fighting the coronavirus was that so many doctors in the cities had been like thrown from windows and just hushed at the early stages of this virus. And now they're saying their vaccine is safe. I think 
just that fact alone should raise some alarm bells. And it, and it, and it is with most, most other countries. But you have President Duterte of the Philippines claiming that he will be receiving the injection. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. Good luck. Yeah. <laughs> so. Okay. Well, that is what it is. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, let's keep going a little bit further east to Hong Kong, where there was an arrest made. Uh, yes. High profile. You want to tell us about that? So sort of in a follow-up to last week's segment about Hong Kong with the introduction of the new security laws, the suspension of elections, and the banning of opposition candidates, sort of as another step in the process of mainland China squeezing Hong Kong. They've taken the step of arresting CEO of Apple Daily News or Apple News of Hong Kong, Jimmy Lai. Jimmy Lai, Lai was a, well, like a media mogul, sort of like, I don't know if there's like an American equivalent, just like think of like a CEO of like CNN or the Washington Post and having the U.S. government come in and arrest them for one of the many obscene reasons we listed last week, colluding with foreigners or spreading disinformation. And so what this shows is that mainland China is taking these steps to further crack down on free speech in Hong Kong. A scary step. What do you think? Yeah, I get, yeah it's, it's a good piggyback on what we talked about last week and just kind of a real world consequence of that, that crackdown on uh, the rights of Hong Kong residents. Um, yeah, it's scary. And I think it kind of goes in the face of the general thinking that Beijing had liberalized in the last few years. I think sometimes we get this view of China that it's, you know, very free and like not quite as harsh anymore, but that seems to only go so far. And when people go against party line, they get arrested. So I think we shouldn't have any misconceptions about the state of uh, liberty in China right now. And what, what the arrest has effectively done is just shut off all sort of freedom of press in China as a whole, Hong Kong included. The news organization um, he ran was the last one that hadn't been bought up by mainland China, like corporations or the government itself, party, party affiliate, like branches and corporations that bought up stakes in other news media that catered to Hong Kong. So again not great news abroad not great, news. <laughs> not great. one of these days we're gonna find a good story from around the world and we're gonna we're gonna deliver it to our listeners because they they deserve it after hearing all this bad news um okay. um you want to start with the new two new segments yeah so we're gonna we, be introducing yeah so we want to add a little bit more structure to the show so we're gonna do some weekly segments <laughs> And the first one I'm going to do, and it is news that sounds too dumb to be true. Okay, so in news that sounds too dumb to be true, uh, recently President Donald Trump had a conversation with the governor of South Dakota, Kristi Noem, and he suggested that his face be added to Mount Rushmore. 
this has been a three-year-long wish of the president that he would join the other people that are on Mount Rushmore. Who's um, on Mount Rushmore? You know, that's a great question, Connor. <laughs> you know, if you want to list them out for us, you go ahead. But, you know, and... Washington, Roosevelt, Lincoln, Jefferson. Wow. And you yep. did your research for this episode. Yeah. It made me look dumb. Yeah. You know, well, only president <laughs> I remember is Barack Obama. That's it. Okay. But... <laughs> So excited to see President Trump added to that list of illustrious men. And then kind of a, a twofer for this segment. He was on a podcast with Hugh Hewitt, who is conservative thinker, call it. And he told Mr. Hewitt, quote, if I don't win the election, China will own the United States. You're going to have to learn to speak Chinese. Would it be so bad if more Americans spoke a foreign language? No. is my question um but yeah that wraps up news that sounds too dumb to be true if you hear any dumb news send it our way we'll we'll think about it we'll include it whatever connor you go ahead and introduce the second of our new segments okay so we're gonna start ending each episode with a recommendation um by one of us uh, it can be anything movie a movie we've watched tv show um, a book we've read, and that's where I'm going to start my recommendation this week. It is a book that I have read, or I've started to read, haven't finished yet. Um, it's You Never Forget Your First by Alexis Coe. Um, it's a biography of George Washington that sort of breaks apart the mythos that we have of our first president, which I think is very important, especially given our sort of national reckoning with historical figures. It does a good job of painting our founders as not 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 um not as godlike as we're led to believe from various stories about the revolution and I don't know it just helped me it helped remind me that the people that founded this country were actual human beings with good ideas but also flaws and flaws that didn't in a self-reflective sort of way a flaw just because they were flawed doesn't mean they were awful, but I think pointing out flaws in historical figures actually makes them more accessible to everyone else instead of saying these people were perfect. So yeah. again, You Never Forget Your First by Alexis Co. Excellent read, very digestible, and actually pretty funny. So check it out. Yeah, I think it's important to reckon with our past as we're on the verge of voting for our future. So, all right. Well, that's, that's the Citizen's Guide episode three, everybody. <laughs> yeah. Maybe um, next week, Pierce will learn who's on. I, I'm going to do my research about some <laughs> monuments and mountains and all kinds. I'm just going to be so researched for next week's episode. Uh, but thank you for listening. We appreciate it so much. We have so much fun doing this, as you can tell. Um, be <laughs> sure to subscribe wherever you listen. Give us a review on Apple Podcasts. And we have just created uh, Instagram and Twitter accounts for the Citizen's Guide. Um, so follow us there. You'll see kind of some information about upcoming episodes. We have some very exciting interviews. Um, I was talking to a potential 
interview subject just before we started recording no hints about who it is what a teaser Uh, yeah so you got to stick around (laughs) if you want to know who it is Um, thanks again for listening uh have a good week